Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up A Well-Read Life. He had chosen his land as well as a man might choose in the brooding expanse of scrawny sand pines. He had bought of the foresters who lived a safe four miles away, high good land in the center of a pine island. The island was called by such a name in an arid forest because it was literally an island of long-leaf pines lifted high, a landmark, in the rolling sea that was the scrub. There were other such islands scattered to the north and west, where some accident of soil or moisture produced patches of luxuriant growth. Even of hammock, the richest growth of all. Live oaks were here and there, the red bay and the magnolia, wild cherry and sweet gum, hickory and holly, the yearling by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings. Why was I so drawn to read The Yearling? This is a question I asked myself as I was reading it recently. It's a story about tragedy and the grueling work of scraping together a living on a farm in North Florida. That type of book is not usually my first choice. I've lived in Florida when I was a child, and I'm not a huge fan of the landscape. But even though I just said that, a bit of the clue is in the quote I just read you. Why was I so drawn to read The Yearling was something that just kept going through my head. As I returned to it nightly, our daughter finally put to bed while we were on a trip to our cabin in the North Carolina mountains. I could not put this book down and I couldn't wait to get back to it. Now, I'd had this book on my shelf for the better part of a year and it was just languishing there. And like I said, it was always in the back of my mind. But while we were in North Carolina, where it is much more difficult to get on the internet and distractions besides a wild toddler are very few. And it's because I was in this place, in this quiet with the uncultivated beauty that surrounded me, that I was finally still enough to see why I was so drawn to this book. And I'll get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to give you a little bit of background of this book and set the scene in place. While Marjorie Kennan Rowlings was writing The Yearling, she was working, I believe she wrote it in New York, but she had been and still owned a farm in Cross Creek in Florida. Now, She's surrounded by the wild beauty of North Florida, the flora and the fauna. And she's also experienced the toil in the cultivation of her land and the wild animals which still roam it. In spite of this, for a time, she has found a place where she is rooted to the land. This was so integral to her writing the book. In her memoir, Cross Creek, she writes about the importance of place, which you really get a sense of in The Yearling. She says, and this is from Cross Creek, there is, of course, an affinity between people and places. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of waters called he sees. And God saw that it was good. This was before man. And if there be such a thing as racial memory, the consciousness of land and water must lie deeper in the core of us than any knowledge of our fellow beings. We were bred of earth before we were born of our mothers. Once born, we can live without mother or father or any other kin, or any friend, or any human love. We cannot live without the earth or apart from it. And something is shriveled in a man's heart when he turns away from it and concerns himself only with the affairs of men. 
and that's from her memoir, Cross Creek, which I've not read all of, but I have read enough to appreciate Marjorie Kenner Rawlings' fine writing and her ability to capture nature so well. In The Yearling, Marjorie Kenner Rawlings is writing about a world that is slipping away. As I said, this is the late 1930s. And if you read the book, it's very strange to think that this world is slipping away. It seems as if it had already gone away in the face of progress. But her neighbors at Cross Creek still hold a bit of this lifestyle. And she has been able to observe this. But progress and technology are very quickly encroaching on this life. It's wonderful because it reduces toil. But something is lost in all of this. And Marjorie Kennan Rawlings feels it in her spirit. There is great dignity in this work, although it is full of toil. And what will happen to the relationship between man and the land as technology and progress have its way? Now we can follow that out because we have seen the fruit of all of this. And as I said, it is amazing at reducing toil. But as a result, we are, for the most part, divorced from the land, meaning the majority of us do not depend on the land for survival. We don't have to cultivate the land in order to eat. We can go to grocery stores and and have the convenience of that. But as I was in North Carolina, and again, I'm surrounded by this uncultivated beauty, and I'm reading this book, and I'm mulling over it, and feeling so sorry for Penny Baxter as he works his land and toils day after day, I realized how much this book was making me desire the redemption of creation. And it was such as I'd never seen it before. And I believe this is why I was being so drawn to this book. This story shows us in a way many of us cannot experience now how to yearn for the new heavens and new earth. Because, as I I keep reiterating, if you're toiling day after day, you will desire for that toil to end. And for not only you, but for the earth to be redeemed because you have that relationship with it. As wonderful as technology is, and I couldn't do this podcast without it, it is a poor substitute for what we will experience with the new creation. Now I'm going to dig in a little bit more with toil, but first I want to read another beautiful quote on place so you can understand, again, the tie with the land that Penny has, which many of us don't experience now. So we'll start with place, which is Baxter Island, I think is what they call their land. From his neighbors, the foresters, as I read earlier, Penny buys a clearing and settles there with his young wife. He is a kind man. He's one of integrity. He is such a good character. And Gregory Peck was the perfect person to play his role in the movie. But he's bruised and broken, and the land offers him healing. Just before the quote I read earlier, I want to share another one about Penny and the land. Because it will give us a peek into toil, but it will also give us a peek into the character of Penny and the relationship that he has with his land. It was not a hindrance. She's talking about being so far away from everyone else. But in the towns and villages and farming sections where neighbors were not too far apart, men's minds and actions and properties overlapped. There were intrusions on the individual spirit. 
There were friendliness and mutual help in time of trouble, true, but there were bickering and watchfulness, one man suspicious of another. He had grown from under the sternness of his father into a world less direct, less honest in its harshness, and therefore more disturbing. He had perhaps been bruised too often. The peace of the vast aloof scrub had drawn him into the beneficence of its silence. Something in him was raw and tender. The touch of men was hurtful upon it, but the touch of the pines was healing. Making a living came harder there. Distances were troublesome in the buying of supplies and the marketing of crops, but the clearing was peculiarly his own. The wild animals seemed less predatory to him than people he had known. Forays of bear and wolf and wildcat and panther on stock were understandable, which was more than he could say of human cruelties. And that's from the yearling. So you see this ability of the land to bring healing to Penny when he has been hurt by his fellow human beings, which I do believe that we are meant to live in in community. We can't live without other people. But I believe this is important to show how we should also have this connection to the land that God has made. Now, there's so much more to unpack here, but I just wanted to give you a brief introduction to the relationship Penny has with the land before I went in to talking about some of the ways the yearling can help us long for the new creation. It has to start with place, though, before we can have that longing. To start with, I want to talk about toil. This is something that my husband and I have been talking about a lot, and he always likes to say he hopes to reduce toil for people, which is so admirable. But I want to go back to that original verse in Genesis to give us some groundwork before I any further talking about how we can how we see toil so strongly depicted in the yearling. So this is after Adam and Eve have eaten of the apple in the garden. And God is telling Adam and Eve what the repercussions of their actions will be. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, as I've said, most of us do not have this reality of toil in order to eat. But for the Baxters, that is their reality. Now, they are a family who are familiar with lack. All their children have died but Jody. And this leaves most of the work of the land to Penny. And from the quote I read earlier, you can surmise that there is great difficulty in getting supplies and trading and selling these supplies because they live further away from town. It, it takes a lot of thought and planning in order to do the buying and the selling. Also, their only neighbors are the foresters who are very easily provoked and they are often on the outs with them. If you read the story, you'll see the foresters are a little bit of the difficult neighbors and they can be very generous with their help, but they can also take offense very, very easily. So they are not dependable. It is by the sweat of Penny's brow that he works the land and Jody is a young boy, so he can't really help his dad as he needs to. And Jody also has a tendency to, well, he's a young boy. He has a tendency to 
want to go and explore the land and wander and frolic. And he just is not the help that Penny needs. But Penny does not hold that against him. I'll talk more about their beautiful relationship next week. And in addition to all of this, the family must fight the elements outside of their control. There is a massive flood that brings great destruction. And it's just a daily chore to go and gather water. They have to go to a sinkhole. There's no water on their land that is nearby the home and they don't have a well. So they have this in addition to their own frailty. It's just unrelenting work for the family's survival. I want to read this other quote about the strong work ethic that Penny has almost to his detriment, but as I said, he can't help that he has to work so hard. This is from towards the end of the book, after one of the many times their crop has been ruined. He was up early each day and finished late. He drove himself mercilessly. The planting itself was done, but he was not content. He was in a fever over the spring work, for weather conditions were favorable and the year's living depended on immediate results. This overwork causes Penny to have an injury that precipitates the great tragedy of the novel. Now, even though I've talked about this toil, there is also great dignity and joy that Penny finds in his work. And this is a mercy and a grace that he is able to find. It's this glimmer of the promise that we have of the new creation that Penny is able to experience, that one day toil will cease and we can work without the hardships and the sweat and the the fighting of elements. And I love how we get this picture of what toil is, but we also see that the work is good, that we want to be able to do this, but we want it without all of these hardships and that there is that promise that one day we will have this. Now, in addition to the dignity and the joy in work, as a mercy and a grace for toil, there's also another beautiful means of grace that God gives us in the natural world, and that is just the beauty that is around us. The landscape of the yearling is a wild beauty. It's not for everyone's taste. It's not necessarily for mine, but for the Baxters, there is such enjoyment of the beauty around them, especially for Jody and Penny. And who of us doesn't long for beauty? The natural world is such a picture of the grace of beauty, of the respite of it in a fallen world. For just a moment, it is this brief peak of what we are promised in the new creation. And our world is just transformed by beauty. If we think of spring and the new life in spring, of how our breath catches as we just walk outside and observe it. And that's what we experience in moments of the yearling. There's especially one moment that I want to read a quote from. It's when Jody and his father are out hunting and Penny calls Jody's attention to some cranes dancing, which is a rare sight for them to see. And I want to read a bit of it because it's just a beautiful description. After I read it, I want to read another quote about this kind of spell that the sight cast over Penny and Jody. The cranes were dancing a cotillion as surely as it was danced at Volusia. Two stood apart, erect and white, making a strange music that was part cry and part singing. The rhythm was irregular, like the dance. The other birds were in a circle. In the heart of the circle, several moved counterclockwise. The musicians made their music. The dancers revised their wings and lifted their feet, first one and then the other. They sank their heads deep in their snowy breast, lifted them and sank them again. They moved soundlessly, 
part awkwardness, part grace. The dance was solemn. Wings fluttered, rising and falling like outstretched arms. The outer circle shuffled around and around. The group in the center attained a slow frenzy. Suddenly, all motion ceased. Jody thought the dance was over, or that the intruders had been discovered. Then the two musicians joined the circle. Two others took their places. There was a pause. The dance was resumed. The birds were reflected in the clear marsh water. Sixteen white shadows reflected the motion. The evening breeze moved across the sawgrass. It bowed and fluttered. The water rippled. The setting sun lay rosy on the white bodies. Magic birds were dancing in a mystic marsh. The grass swayed with them in the shallow waters, and the earth fluttered around them. The earth was dancing with cranes, and the low sun, and the wind, and the sky. Now then, Penny and Jody go home, and at dinner, Aura notices that they're acting strangely. But here's a quote from that about the change that this has made on Jody and Penny. They had no thought for what they ate, nor for the woman. They were no more than conscious that she spoke to them. They had seen a thing that was unearthly. They were in a trance from the strong pool of its beauty. Now, what they observe is an exception to the usual, and Penny and Jody are just transfixed by it. Now, we would be hard-pressed, I'm sure, to see something like this in person. We may be able to see it on a movie or on TV, but this encounter with beauty that can bring such a change to our perception of the world around us. But as I said, this is an exception. It's not something that we see all the time. And as I was reading the yearling and there were these moments peppered throughout the book with all these trials and hardships, I realized that instead of beauty being an exception to the brokenness around us, it will be in abundance one day. So it's this beautiful ability in the story to offer that glimmer of the hope, the grace that we have of beauty breaking into this world that is often so like Penny broken and in need of healing. And it can offer us that enough to bolster us up to help us continue. And it also just whispers that promise that one day beauty will be flourishing on this earth. And it's something that we need to keep in mind as we get into some of the most heart-wrenching moments of the book, and that is the enmity between man and beast and the longing for peace for that. I'm going to talk about some of the ways that the Baxters face this with the animals around them, and then I'll talk about the most, as I mentioned, one of the most heart-wrenching parts of this book, and that is Jody's relationship with his pet, Deer Flag. So the Baxters are surrounded with wild animals. There are bears and wolves and raccoons, all sorts of predators, snakes, that can threaten them and their livestock. And in addition to the predators, you have deer that can come in and ruin your crop. Now the predators threaten their livestock. And there are moments over and over throughout the book where the wolves attack and there's a running battle with 
a bear, a certain bear called Old Slewfoot that is throughout the whole book. He's Penny's a special enemy. And Penny is a type of man that doesn't kill unless it is needed. So he is very gracious to the wild animals and he does his best not to kill unless it's absolutely necessary. If his livestock is threatened, if his family are threatened, if his life is threatened, or if they need food. That is Penny's rule. He does not hunt for sport. But this one bear, Old Slewfoot, just will kill to kill. That really wrinkles Penny. So that's why he gets an especial vengeance against this one bear. But still, he won't he won't go after him when it isn't the right time. So it's very interesting that how that relationship plays out throughout the story. But their livestock is constantly threatened and it's very dire for them. So really through Penny and then later through their relationship between Jody and Flag, we see this desire for the end of the struggle between man and beast. But with Jody, we get the heart of the desire for that peace to be made. Jody has longed for a pet for some time. He's an only child, and he's very lonely, even with the company of his mom and his dad, and he's very close to his father. And he ends up getting Flag, which makes their relationship even stronger because Flag's mother's life is sacrificed in order to save Penny. He is bitten by a rattlesnake, and he has to kill Flag's mother in order to use her liver to extract the poison. Now, Jody sees that she has left a baby behind, and so he begs his mother and father that he can go back and get this baby deer. And his mother is adamant that they will have no pets in the home. I mean, they have dogs that they're used for hunting, but they can't afford to feed any other animals. But Penny stands up for Jody and allows him to go back and get the deer because he views it as a, a debt to repay to the mother who saved his life. And I know that the yearling is predominantly marketed on this relationship between Jody and Flag, and it is a very important part of the book. I didn't find it to be the whole of the book. There's much more to it than just that. But it is beautiful to see this glimmer of hope and that this peace that the wild beast and man, this young man, can be at rest together. And it is a very tender relationship. It is a very sweet relationship. And it shows how an animal can ease that loneliness and comfort us in our lives. And, and their, their place for that relationship between the two, the mutual relationship, the dependence that the animal has on the man and the comfort they receive from them, and then the comfort and the companionship that the man-child experiences. And I'll just read a very quick quote about that. And it's in very sparse language, which Marjorie Kennan Rawlings writes in this beautiful, sparse, poetic language. And I, and I love it. It's after Jody observes a wolf, a lone wolf that has been part of this wolf pack that have harassed livestock throughout the, the clearing and their neighbors, the foresters. And all of them have been able to be killed off except for one. And this one wolf has made friends with the Baxter's dogs, and he and Jody observes him playing with the dogs at night, and then he's scared off. And so this is post that sighting, and this is Jody sitting with Flag. They squatted together by the hearth, caught up in the sadness and the strangeness. 
It was a harsh thing, even for a wolf, to be so alone that it must turn to the yard of its enemy for companionship. Jody laid an arm across Flag. He wished that Flag could understand that he had been in desolation in the forest. As for himself, Flag had eased a loneliness that had harassed him in the very heart of his family. So there you get a picture of just the beautiful relationship between the two. Ultimately, though, Flag cannot be tamed, not yet. He is still a wild animal, and his instinct and his nature cannot be changed. And it is in Flag's ruining of the crops after an especially difficult season of toil and hardship where Penny has had to replant crop after crop after floods, and then Flag eats the crop once and then twice, and they are on the brink of ruin, and it leads to Flag's death. And this is where we get that greatest desire for redemption, when we've seen this beautiful relationship, and then we have to see that it's its end. It has to happen in this earth and in this time. But it gives us that promise that there won't be enmity between man and beast in the new creation. Unfortunately, this leads to the break in Penny and Jody's relationship, and I will talk about that next time. I'll talk about their relationship in the next episode, and it's it's beautiful. There is a beautiful moment of a glimmer of the prodigal son played out. But for now, this moment reminds us and gives us hope, as in Isaiah 11, 6-9, which promises the end of enmity by the companionship between men and beast. There will be peace among the wild things. I want to just read that quote from Isaiah because I want to leave us with a little bit of hope after the heaviness of what I've just spoken about. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall each draw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mentioned in the last episode that I believe God sometimes places a book in our life at just the right time. I found this to be the case for the yearling. I loved the book when I first read it, but then I was mostly majoring in on the relationship between Flag and Jody. But there was so much that I didn't see from that reading. It took quiet and stillness, a moving away from the siren call of technology, a moving outdoors to watch the beauty around me, for me to hear to be reminded to not only glory in the beauty that God has created, a reminder of his promise to be fulfilled, but to yearn after that promise and to wait for the hope to be realized. Well, that's all for this week. I'll be back in two weeks with the final part in the Yearling series where I will talk about the relationship between Penny and Jody. And it's a beautiful depiction of a relationship with between father and son, and also it can be a mirror of God's tenderness and his love for us. Thanks so much for joining me this week. If you'd like to connect during the week, I can sometimes be found on Instagram at WellReadBeth and Facebook 
on the A Well-Read Life Facebook group. If you enjoy today's episode and the podcast in general, would you consider leaving a rating or review? It's just a small way that you can share the podcast with others. Thanks so much. Until next time, with more yearling, happy reading.